The Jewish views on marking the Holocaust. We speak to the person behind Holocaust Memorial Day. The Norwood Run Care Home in Northwest London that's had an outstanding result. And Jay Rayner, the restaurant critic, master chef judge, and sometimes jazz pianist, tells us about his UK-wide tour. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has announced renewed funding to ensure that Scottish teenagers can continue to visit Auschwitz. It will mean that students from every school and college in the country can participate in the Holocaust Educational Trust Lessons from Auschwitz programme. The Trust said it was delighted that the Scottish Government recognised the value of such a unique educational opportunity. This comes in a week commemorating Holocaust Memorial Day. Jewish community leaders have said that the wearing of coloured wristbands by asylum seekers in Cardiff is totally inappropriate after it was likened to Jews having to wear yellow stars during the Holocaust. A firm in the city, which was supplying meals for the migrants, who are from the Middle East and North Africa, has now dropped the practice after a wave of criticism. In Jerusalem, a 23-year-old Israeli woman has died of the injuries she suffered in a knife attack by a Palestinian. Shlomit Krigman was in a mini-market in Bet Horon on the West Bank when two men targeted her and another woman who was only slightly injured. The attackers were shot dead by a security guard. In the last four months, there have been almost daily Palestinian stabbing incidents, with 25 Israelis losing their lives and 149 Palestinians killed by Israeli fire. Benjamin Netanyahu has claimed that the United Nations Secretary-General is encouraging terror. Ban Ki-moon, who is soon to step down, condemned the recent stabbings in Israel, but said it was natural for oppressed people to feel frustrated and have a sense of alienation and despair. The Israeli Prime Minister said there was no justification for the attacks, and the President of the World Jewish Congress called Ban Ki-moon's comments worrying and shocking and said that he was excusing the inexcusable. And finally, a Jewish care home in Stanmore, run by Norwood, has been given the outstanding rating by the Care Quality Commission. It makes the home one of only 60 in the country to be in the top 1%. The home cares for eight people with learning disabilities, and the Commission said it encouraged them to be as independent as possible, with staff offering support. And Diana Toman will be speaking to the manager of the care home, Peter Behan, later in the programme. That's the news now. Here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sport. Thanks, Viv. A Jewish adventure tour leader has made history by becoming part of the first female crew to row across the Pacific Ocean. Natalia Cohen was one of four British women who embarked on a 257-day journey from the United States to Australia, sailing 9,600 miles in a 29-foot boat. In football, North London Raiders A lost their 100% winning start to the season on Sunday after they were held to a 2-2 draw by Oakwood A. However, the runaway Division 2 leaders' scrabble are still going strong, their 5-0 win over Rail Hendon seeing them make it 14 wins from 14 games. And finally, Ashley Stokes says he's looking forward to winning next year's Ping Pong World Championships. Stokes, who has represented Team GB at European Maccabi Games, reached the last 16 of this year's event at Alexandra Palace, missing out on the quarter-finals after being beaten by the three-time world champion Maxim Shmyrev. 
Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, Andrew sticks with us. Welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. As I say, still joining me in the studio is sports editor Andrew Sherwood, and we're also joined by features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Let's start off with a rather striking front page. What's David Cameron going to do to mark Holocaust Memorial and make sure we don't forget it? Right, Phil. Well, obviously, Wednesday was Holocaust Memorial Day, and as a result of that, that David Cameron announced on Wednesday that a new Holocaust Memorial is to be built by Parliament in the Victoria Tower Gardens. And this is obviously going to be using public money. This is going to be quite prominent, quite public, and can only be a good move, let's hope, for remembering what was a very dark era in history. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is 71 years in the making. It's about time, actually. I I, uh, fully applaud the government for actually taking this action. And I think it would be really lovely because, you know, it would be nice to one day take my children down there and say to them, this is the memorial and this is what happened. And it's, it's really marking it out. I think it's actually staggering that Britain hasn't had a memorial up till now. But it's interesting that you say that it's about time because Mm. I don't know whether or not I've ever looked at it as Britain's responsibility to even mark the Holocaust. I think it's fantastic we do. And I'm sure there'll be many people out there who applaud all the efforts made. I mean, the the other night on BBC television, there was a fantastic hour-long memorial programme about it. But I don't know whether or not anyone would be forgiven for thinking, well, why is it the UK's responsibility? Why tax money should be spent on something like this, which, A, was nothing to do with Britain, thank goodness. I mean, obviously, they took in refugees, but it wasn't their fault it happened. And furthermore, it's not by any stretch of the imagination the majority religion. Not so much a responsibility of the UK or any other country for that matter, but I think it's also a matter of respect and obviously paying respect to this atrocity that did happen back in the 1930s and the fact that this monument will be there, obviously as Fran was saying, younger future generations can come and learn about it and be educated about what it stands for and what happened. But I think it also stands as a positive message about it never happening again. I think that's really important to make that point. When my daughter asks what happened in the Holocaust, she will learn and she will look to other examples of very unfortunate, horrific genocide that's happening all over the world. And we can talk about that. And it's it's a memorial, yes, to the six million Jews, which let's face it, it's unprecedented. That didn't happen ever before in world history that so many died. But hopefully as a lesson for it to never happen again. And also, I think what is extraordinary in another story featured in the paper this week that we can talk about the woman who, despite the man behind all of this being, of course, Adolf Hitler, she has actually said that she forgives him. How is it even fathomable to think that someone could do that? But apparently so. Who is this and why have they now said that they do forgive him? Well, if you cast your mind back to last April, there was the trial of the bookkeeper of Auschwitz, Oscar Groening. And a lady named Eva Kaur, who now lives in America, originally from Hungary, made the headlines because of all the survivors there who were giving testimony, she actually publicly declared that she forgave him. And the two then hugged. I mean, these photos went all over the world. Quite an amazing moment. Some, well, actually many Holocaust survivors didn't actually agree with what she had done. They had an issue with how... Could she forgive any Nazi, let alone this man who was so intrinsic to the whole 
horrific murdering process at Auschwitz. But this week, ahead of Holocaust Memorial Day, and um, just after a documentary about that whole episode went out on Channel 4, she actually declared that she would forgive any Nazi, including Hitler himself. Quite remarkable words. I think it's important to point out that she herself has said that she's not saying that every other survivor should follow in her footsteps. She's simply saying this is something she wanted to do, makes her feel better because it gets rid of the burden on herself as a victim. So she's really freeing herself of that. And this isn't about, you know, looking at Hitler and giving him compassion. It's not coming from that point of view. Yeah, and also I think that the wise man once told me that forgiveness is more about self-gain rather than letting someone off the hook. There's also another Holocaust of sort story in the paper this week, and this is about World Jewish Relief uh, releasing a load of documents uh, containing information about refugees. What's that story about? They've actually made some documents publicly available for the first time which show how refugees before and after the Second World War who came to Britain, how they came over, their names, you know, personal details about themselves. I'm sure very interesting to anyone who is interested in genealogy and wants to know more about their family history. I mean, it is quite incredible when you actually look to see what these records depict. Something like, you know, the case files of 10,000 children who came to Britain on the kinder transport. It's amazing that all these years onwards, these files are still there. We can now go back and look at them and see what happened to, you know, long-lost relatives. It really is astonishing. One would hope as well that this kind of documentation goes some way to actually proving, not that I believe for a second that they'd look at it, but any Holocaust deniers evidence. out there, it is actual proof, living proof, existing proof that does show that this ghastly event occurred. And, and I suppose that it can only go some way to helping the cause of saying, well, look, if this is what people had to go through in history, here's hoping that we never have to go through it again because words can only do so much. Yeah, and then among the files which have actually been released are those of Margot and Richard Springer, who were actually the parents of Jerry Springer, the well-known TV chat show host. And it's interesting to you know read about their history and how they came over. Again, like many other refugees, were not very much at all and then went on to make a success of themselves and have children who made a success of themselves. So it's a lovely story from that point of view as well, showing refugees made good. And also considering that a lot of documentation actually got destroyed around that time anyway, to some families it's going to be the nearest thing they're going to get to historic documents about their family roots and where they came from. One more story, if we will, Fran, and this is about a couple who are celebrating a rather big anniversary. Uh, yes, Rochelle and Victor Gatter, who live at Jay Living's uh, Maitland Joseph House, are getting ready for their anniversary, but it's their 74th anniversary. That is a long time. That really is a long <laughs> time. Just, uh, I mean, I'm just great coming observation up, from Andrew Sherwood. There. I'm, I'm well just done. coming up to 10 years, and I'm thinking that's a long time. So <laughs> <laughs> 74 years, you've got to hand it to them. They've got the secret of successful marriage down to a pat, haven't they? And so. we should also wish Victor, the husband, a happy 100th birthday for next month. Now, oh, well, Mazel off to both of them on that remarkable achievement, I'm sure. Thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for for the papers from this week. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday right across London and you can also read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk.
So this week saw the annual Holocaust Memorial Day, as you've just been hearing. It started back in 2001 and has been on or around the 27th of January ever since. I've been finding out more about how the day is marked and the significance of why it is by speaking to the chief executive of Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, Olivia Marks-Waldman. I started by asking her to tell us the reason why it's so important to never forget the era that changed the face of Europe forever. The Holocaust has been described as an episode that shook the foundations of civilization. I think this is a really powerful phrase that shows us just what a threat it was to our own humanity and our own sense of ourselves as a civilized society. And for that reason alone, we should be marking it. It it was an episode where we saw the planned purposeful murder of six million Jewish people. That's a threat to everybody, Jewish and non-Jewish. And we know that the Nazis perpetrated a program of annihilation of gay people, disabled people, Roma and Sinti communities and so many others. One of the lessons that we learn is that despite its atrocity, genocide has happened since then in Cambodia, in Rwanda, in Bosnia and still ongoing in Darfur. So these are very powerful reasons why we need to commemorate what happened in the past. And on Holocaust Memorial Day, we also look at the steps we can all take to make a better future. And also, I think that with anyone who might have seen some of the ways in which Holocaust Memorial Day was marked this year. Personally speaking, I watched the program that transmitted on BBC Two television. I found it very moving, not just because obviously I can relate to it, having had ancestors from Russia and other parts of Europe. And I think that anyone who was Jewish could watch it, but I think that anyone who was non-Jewish, it was as proven for so many of the participants who weren't necessarily Jewish, were visibly moved by what they saw. So I guess that it is important to almost not shock people, but just raise that kind of awareness to ensure that whatever can be done to prevent something like that happening in the future doesn't. I mean, obviously, as you say, it is still happening now, though. So how would you say we combat to try and stop something like that happening again? Well, firstly, to address the point about the power of the ceremony, we thought very carefully about how hard-hitting some of the elements of the ceremony should be and the films that were included within the ceremony were very hard-hitting and did include some graphic images but very appropriately and we felt it was important to show the horror and the extent of what happened and not to present some kind of sanitized version people need to know exactly what happened Holocaust Memorial Day is a very dynamic day. It has a twofold purpose. It is partly to look back on the past and to reflect on it, but it is also to do something about what we're learning about it so that we can create a safer and a better future. So it looks to the past and it looks to the future. And that dynamism shows us what can happen when people take that time to mark Holocaust Memorial Day. And we know that there have been some extremely engaging and creative activities that have been going on around the country and that many of those involve people undertaking different projects and learning and all kinds of activities that are taking steps towards combating those kind of ideologies that sadly still exist and undertaking projects that are in different ways creating a better future. 
Do you worry that Holocaust Memorial Day will lose its poignancy once there are no survivors left? We've got to be realistic. We know that a lot of the survivors now are getting on in years. And however many there are still in existence, which is wonderful, they're still here to tell their stories. Realistically, 10, 20 years down the line, they might not be here. Is it going to lose its strength and its ability to remind? This year, we anticipate there will be more than 3,600 activities across the country marking Holocaust Memorial Day. Survivors are not able to speak at 3,600 activities, but through the work of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, we ensure that every one of those activities has at its centre the life stories of people who are most affected. We know that the resources we create, whether in written form, through film, video, podcasts such as this, artworks, all these are ways of sharing people's life stories, people who were murdered and people who did survive from the Holocaust and from more recent genocides. So I don't think we will see a lessening of the nation's commitment to marking Holocaust Memorial Day. And survivors who we work with know that we take their legacy very seriously and ensure that their experiences are at the heart of Holocaust Memorial Day. See, the thing, talking personally, and I am not encouraged to do that on this program very often, but I will do in this case, there's one thing that worries me quite seriously, and that is deniers, those who are out there who completely reject the idea that A, the Holocaust ever happened, Or worse, they acknowledge it happened, but they doubt the number of people who were killed. And as we know, the number is near 12 million in total when you include the others who weren't of a Jewish background, when you include them, obviously murdered by the Nazis. How does one even begin to go about combating that? Because without them being there at the time, how do we get them to believe that it happened on the scale it happened? I think there are... Two groups of people we can be thinking of when you ask that question. There are some people who genuinely may not know enough about the past and who may be expressing Holocaust trivialization or denial views from a place of ignorance. And I think there are others who do so with far more negative and other agendas going on. We try and make sure that the people who are unaware of the past and who are ignorant of what happened have opportunities to learn more. And that is one of the reasons we're so keen to see Holocaust Memorial Day itself expand and reach more people. And in that regard, we are hugely successful. Every year we see more activities. Every year more people attend those activities. And to have over 3,600 across the country... Is a, is a huge number. We know that nearly 20% of those activities will be welcoming over 500 guests at those events. And through the many different ways that we share people's life stories, we expect to be able to show what happened to individuals and to give them their humanity back and to show everybody what happened. As we've heard just now in this programme a little earlier on during our press review, the main story on the front page of the Jewish News this week is that Prime Minister David Cameron has announced a memorial, permanent memorial, for Holocaust victims. Knowing that we've got the backing of key figures such as the Prime Minister of this country must make a massive difference to the cause. For Holocaust commemoration and education to have such support, not only from the Prime Minister, but cross-party, is hugely significant. 
Holocaust Memorial Day itself was established by the government. Holocaust Memorial Day Trust is funded solely by the government. His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales recently agreed to become our patron and previously Her Majesty the Queen was our patron. These hugely senior figures across party from the royal family publicly and passionately supporting Holocaust commemoration and education, very significant. It shows that our belief in the importance of Holocaust commemoration and education is supported and encouraged at the highest levels and throughout British society. There'll be people listening to this now who will either want more information about Holocaust Memorial Day Trust or they may even want to get involved. They may want to help in whatever way they can. Where should they go and what should they be doing? The first port of call is our website, hmd.org.uk. If you look there, you have our email address, our phone number. Do get in touch. We'd be delighted to hear from any of your listeners. There are so many ways to support our work, whether directly as a volunteer at next year's ceremony or through sharing the information that we have and the life stories with the people within your own networks. That all helps not only raise awareness of the main messages of Holocaust Memorial Day, but really importantly, shares the direct experiences of the people who were most affected and helps other people learn more about what happened in the past. Olivia Marks-Waldman, the Chief Executive of Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, talking to me there about the importance of preserving the memory of the Holocaust and how we as a community can do our bits to ensure it never happens again. Please, God. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and relationships expert, Emma Ziff. They'll be discussing what we've just been hearing, how to preserve the memory of the Holocaust. Plus, Diana Toman will be here speaking to Peter Behan, the manager at Stamel Cottage, a Norwood-run Jewish care home, which recently received an outstanding rank from the Care Quality Commission. Now, most of us know that Jay Rayner is a food critic, journalist and even a judge on MasterChef. But did you know he's also a jazz pianist. Well, entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to the man himself about a UK-wide tour that he's about to embark on. He'll be taking two shows to various theatres. Kate started by asking Jay, what is it he exactly is doing on the stage? I'm doing two shows. So one is a show about terrible restaurant experiences called My Dining Hell in which I take people through some of my worst ever dining experiences and why we like negative restaurant reviews. And I also share terrible reviews of my own work. You stand there and you read them? I use PowerPoint as a second performer on stage with me. So there's basically the two of us, me and the, me and the, the screen. Me and the screen. And uh, bits of my own terrible reviews come up. Just little snippets, enough for you to know that someone hated me. And I read those out as well, because it's important to balance things up. So there's that, and then I also, I have a jazz quartet. Is you're a musician as well? I've recently allowed myself to call myself a musician, yes. I play jazz piano, and I do, uh, we do songs about food, and songs about agony as well, because my mother Claire, late mother Claire, was an agony aunt, and a lot of blues songs sound like letters to agony aunts. So I've got those two shows, and then sometimes, as is going to happen at the Kingston Rose and the Auburn Arena, I put the two together, so you get My Dining Hell in the first half and Jazz in the second. It's a whole evening with me. 
Can you expand a bit more about the jazz element? How did that all come in? It was totally accidental. I played jazz piano for a very, very long time, about 30 years from when I was a kid. Very badly, it has to be said. But we're in the Ivy Club, and downstairs in the uh, bar, there is a piano there, and on Friday nights they have jazz trios. And the guy who r- runs the music here n- knew that I played, and one night he got me to sit in with other musicians. First time in my life. We were talking about five years ago. And it was the most thrilling thing. I'd been on live TV that night, I'd done the one show, and my heart hadn't moved, and now suddenly I was playing with other musicians, and it was the most thrilling thing. And so I determined that I would do more of it. And we ended up doing an hour-long show at Jewish Book Week. We were invited by Jewish Book Week to do a show, and it built from there. And I have sort of determined that I'd, I'd do as much as I possibly can. I am not the greatest pianist in the world. We just got a very nice review from The Times. They gave us four stars. They said no one will mistake Jay Rayner for Oscar Peterson, which is absolutely true. But I work with very good musicians. We have very careful arrangements. And food and drink is a brilliant area for us. So songs like Black Coffee, One for My Baby, which is the ultimate drunk song, and Save the Bones for Mr. Jones. And then... There are songs which are drawn from my mother's life as an agony aunt and stories I can tell about Claire, which I never told when she was alive. A lot of the time because I feared people would think I'd got where I am today through nepotism, but she's been gone five years and I think I'm quite secure now. So there's a lot of jazz tunes that play on that agenda and a lot of great stories and it's it's just a lot of fun. How wonderful. And also about you. Yeah. <laughs> it's part of a book. You're saying you're sort of backing the show into a book. Oh, well, no, what, what happened was... The reason the performance happened was because I got very, very bored and irritated by literary festivals. So I'd write a book, and then you'd have to go to a literary festival and sit between two palm you know, rubber plants, and somebody who hadn't read the book properly would interview you, and it felt like you'd been shortchanging the audience, and shortchanging me, because I wouldn't get paid. And I thought, there has to be a better way. So a few years ago, I published a book called A Greedy Man in a Hungry World, and I put together my first show for that. And it turned into a thing. I found myself touring small theatres, some medium-sized theatres. Fabulous. It's a concept we've never heard of. And, it, and it, was, it was mine, and I loved it for being mine. So sometimes if I do it as a whole evening, you'll get the performance bit for 45 minutes, send them to the bar, and then 30 minutes of Q&A. And I realised that that one was coming to the end of its life after about two years. But I also noticed that it was quite an important money earner. <laughs> So I decided to do another one. I'd done an e-book called My Dining Hell, 20 Ways to Have a Lousy Night Out, which was a collection of 20 of my most negative reviews, restaurant reviews. And so I decided to make a show from that book. And then we actually published the book in print form as well. That's an odd reversal. You don't normally go digital to print, and that's what we did. And so, yeah, it's become a part of my working life. And as it happens, My Dining Hell will be retired probably by the early summer and then in June I will be launching a new show based on the book that I am literally finishing now called The Ten Food Commandments. I play Moses. I'm getting a Moses Of course you are. I'm surprised you're not God actually. I, uh, no, I, I, I've got a plan for God. God is going to turn up in that but we can talk about that in a, in a moment. There is a book but the show is not just a reading of the book it is a show it's a performance I'm, I'm talking to you now I'm sitting it with you in the in the Ivy Club which is wonderful am I in the Ivy Club? You're, you're in the Ivy Club so the Ivy restaurant that everybody knows is on the corner of West Street and then back behind it around, there's a membership we? club private membership club which is basically a, you know, a bit of a smarmy West End club. So I'm in this smarmy West End club and I'm yeah. talking to you and you seem such a nice chap. <laughs> and I don't understand how you would want to style yourself as a kind of Simon Cowell of restaurants. And why is it 
okay to be unkind or mean to people, rip apart their livelihood, and maybe say things that are going to have such a huge impact. All right. There are a number of things to say. The first one is I don't I don't style myself as anything. There's there was a reference on Wikipedia, my Wikipedia entry that said he has the subriquet acid rainer. Which I thought was very funny, but I didn't know where, where, where it had come from. I've never Wikipedia. been. Wikipedia. It was Wikipedia. I've never been able to find the source. The negative reviews are about a fifth of what I do. So if you look at my restaurant reviews in The Observer on a yearly well, that's basis. That's what you're known for. That's what it sort of. Well, it, it may be, but it's a very odd thing. There are only about nine out of 50 which are really, really negative. But your whole show is based around that. Yes, because if I did a show called My Dining Heaven, nobody would be interested. People like negative narratives. Now, why do I write them? I don't pick on people individually. I don't pick on waiters. I don't pick on specific named chefs on a personal basis. But if you are paying £100 a head for dinner, you have the right to expect something good. It's a lot of money, an awful lot of money. And if it's not good, somebody needs to say so. But often uh, it's very personal, though. What You had a bad experience. You sat next to someone that was noisy. Someone's phone went I've off. I've been doing this job for over 15 years. And I believe me, I don't base it on someone's phone going off or me having had a bad day. And the other thing I would say is, I write books, as, as you know. I'm on my ninth now. And my books get reviewed. I do not question anybody's right to review my books. I have no right to question it, even if they get really personal. Because it's an enormous privilege to write books for a living. And you cannot then expect anybody to go, round of applause, you filled a load of pages. Moving, moving away from that, your growing up years, you're, you're Jewish, we're on, on Jewish radio. Yeah. Your mother was a household name, very much loved, Claire Rayner. Did she encourage you? Was there a, was it, and was there a Jewish element to your background? There was accidentally a very strong Jewish element to my background, which was... If we start on one side, which was it was a non-believing, non-kosher household. My father insisted on that I was a mitzvah because he said you only regret things you didn't do, and actually he was right on that. I'm glad that I was. Real reformed Jews, so you know, on the softer edge of things. Culturally, I look back and I can say that in the noise and the banter around the table and the relations and the food, we were you know a Jewish household in that sense. But what happened was we moved house and I moved school at the same time and I ended up with no friends. So we have a moment's silence for this sad story. And actually my parents were quite desperate. And so at the age of 12, they packed me off to Shemesh, which was the summer Summer. camp of Reform Synagogues. And I came back with a small, intimate circle of just 250 friends, exclusively Jewish. And from then until about the age of 15, 16, that was the case all my friends were Jewish. I look back at it with a slightly curious air. It was a cultural thing that united us. So in that sense, yes. It, and I came, and in the end, I wrote a whole novel about it, Day of Atonement, which is... Were you writing it while you were at school? No, was no, that no, later no, on? no, I wrote it uh, in my early 30s. It's, uh, we re-released it as an e-book recently, because it had never been an e-book. It was published in 98, I think, and that was the story of Northwest London Jewry. So... There is no God in my universe. I am face down in the pig. But there is no doubt that it's been a part of my upbringing. Lovely. And going back to your show, how do we get tickets? How do we know? How do we find the out more? The easiest way to find out stuff about my live shows is to go to my website, which is jrayner.co.uk. And all the information you could ever wish for is there. Thing, I'll be at Kingston on February the 23rd. And I'll be at the Auburn Arena in St Albans on March the 3rd. And those are the two big shows for London.
Jay Rayner, talking to Kate Fulton there about his UK-wide tours. For more information, you can go to jrayner.co.uk, as Jay has just mentioned. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, a little Norwood-run Jewish care home based in Stanmore in northwest London has just been ranked outstanding by the Care Quality Commission. To give you a sense of perspective, this means it is one of 60 care homes in the whole country, making it in the top 1%. Pretty impressive, right? Community reporter Diana Toman has been finding out more about Stamor Cottage, as it is known, and she started by asking the manager, Peter Bahan, how proud are they of their achievement? Yeah, yeah, we are. We're really proud of it, obviously. Um, the five areas that they inspected, two of the five are outstanding, caring and safety, and the other three areas were good. And to get a good is really, really difficult. So to get an outstanding, you know, was over and above, you know, what we were expecting, so... You weren't expecting them, well, were you? No, because it, it is difficult to, to, to achieve it. So, and, and there are so many kind of processes you've got to go through to get to an outstanding. They have a regional panel and they had to have to pass the, the proposal first of all. And then it needs to go to a national panel. So it went through three or four areas before it was actually agreed. Does that mean you had three inspections? No, you have one inspection, but the, the inspector has to propose it to his line manager first of all when it becomes to an outstanding and then it has to be agreed with by the regional panel and then by a national panel. So it's it's got three layers of qualification, so to speak. Which makes it all the more, more impressive. Yeah, well, difficult, uh, difficult and get, impressive, yeah. yes. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the home. It's quite small, isn't it? Yeah, we've got eight people uh, living here with mild learning disabilities, some more moderate learning, learning disabilities, autism, Down syndrome, had some behavioural issues in the past. So we've done a lot of work with those guys around communication, around behavioural support plans, you know, being, being proactive, really, looking at what, what triggers there are to behaviours instead of actually just waiting for a behaviour to happen, trying to see what we can do it, it proactively to stop the behaviour occurring, basically. And how much do the residents actually have a say in how their lives are conducted here? Well, they have a massive say because they have regular resident meetings. When we're reviewing their care plans, they're always involved. There's different levels of capacity, so people are involved in different ways. Some people can communicate verbally, some people through Makaton, some people through uh, signs and Would objects. Would you just like to explain? I know what Makaton is, but yeah. do you just want to explain what it is? It's a more simplified form of BSL, so British Sign Language, right. So, but it's specifically for people with learning disabilities. Some people would have been taught that when they were in, when they were in school, when they were younger. Others may not have, so we've introduced it for, for those who haven't had it. And for those who have had it, we've introduced more symbols and signs that they can use. How old are they? Well, what's the uh, age the o- range? Yeah, the oldest is 42 and the youngest is 27. Really? Yeah. I got the impression it was young adults. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's... Yeah, it is. The 27-year-old would count as a young adult. Yeah, yes. it's, it's developmental age more than the actual age. Oh, I see. So it's so from that, we'd we be classed by CQC as young, young, young adults. So Right. And how long are they expected to stay here? It's different, for again, for different people. Everybody has a, their own kind of personal development plan. Some people might have the ultimate goal of moving on to the supported living, for example, or you know, having their own flat. And others maybe with more profound issues, maybe this might be somewhere where it could be a longer term goal. So there's not a cut and dried, they're here for 10 years or five years. It's about 
giving somebody the skills to to be able to develop in a way that gives them time to move on to to a new environment. I can understand that, which Mm -hmm. must mean that you've got a waiting list, surely, if people aren't moving out all that predictably, shall I say. There are there are waiting lists in, in within Norwood that's dealt with separately through through Norwood. But for me, the important thing is that someone doesn't move on until they're ready to move on. So they have to have the right right skills in terms of communication, in terms of understanding, you know, natural day to day paying your bills, for example, dealing with emergencies if there was a fire, you know, things like that. So those kind of things. So but some people are not, you know, at at, at a more basic level than that in terms of their support needs. So it's about how the health needs have been taken care of. I go back, I go back to communi- communication again. Communication is a big thing because it, it, if the communication supports are not right, then you might have lots of behavioural issues. I can see the knock-on effect of that. Yeah, yes. So, so would you say this was a sort of halfway house to the outside world? It's it's difficult to kind of <laughs> capture what it is, but it's yeah, to a degree. Yeah, you, you we're kind of between that that place where they come from school, and then moving on to support a living, for example, or having your own flat. So we're kind of somewhere in between there. But it's not for everybody. Some people, you know, this environment actually suits them because there's a structure to it, there's a safety to it. There's that 24-7 care, which some some guys with more, with more profound needs actually need. That must mean they don't want to move out. Yeah, and it's still, well, nobody has. We've never had an issue where somebody has actually said they want to move. And actually somebody who has got, who, who moved in recently, who's got Asperger's, but is very high functioning. That was the goal when she moved, but she's very, very secure here. And she's stated to herself, she doesn't want to move. So she's quite happy where she is. The, the, the good thing as well, it's a smaller environment. So the bigger environments, maybe people do want to move on because they don't feel comfortable. But this is a smaller environment. So actually people are, it's more person-centred or it's easier to be person-centred. Feels a bit more like home. Yeah, it, well, that's what it is. They're, they are like a small family. Can you just tell me what the ratio is between the residents and the staff? It's down to funding, really, from the local authority. But normally it's one to three. Yeah, one my, member of staff yeah, to three, three. residents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, Well done and many, many congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for giving us your time. No problem. Peter Bahan, the manager at Norwood Care Home, Stanmore Cottage, speaking to community reporter Diana Toman there. And muzzles off to all of them on their recent CQC rating of outstanding, making it in the top 1% in the whole country. Now, you may remember last week that we spoke to Rabbi David Mayer from Pages, the Partnership for Jewish Schools, about their award ceremony that was going to take place this past week. Well, the award ceremony has been and gone, and I have been finding out how it went from our friend and colleague, editor of The Jewish News, Richard Ferrer. I started by asking Richard to tell us about the night itself. Wednesday night saw the Jewish Schools Awards in association with us, the Jewish News Pages, the Partnership for Jewish Schools and the Emmis Foundation. It was a chance to celebrate our schools and particularly our teachers. I don't think we celebrate our community enough. I think we're very kind of backwards about coming forwards and it was a chance basically for the education Oscars for the Jewish community. We had 24 shortlisted candidates. We had nine overall winners at JW3, nearly 3,000 people with canapes and wine and celebration and a two-hour amazing ceremony. I'd particularly like to thank Rabbi David Mayer and his amazing team at Pages for putting everything together. These are really exciting times for Jewish schools. The event took place only days after the latest league tables came out, which show once again at GCSE and A-level Jewish schools are way ahead of the curve compared to everybody else in Britain. So parents wanting to give their kids a Jewish education, I think, is a, a more and more popular thing. And, and Wednesday night's event, I think, really rubber-stamped that fact. 
what would you say stood out for you as the big winners? I'm sure everyone was a big winner in their own right, but there had to be people who really stood out, their story really telling about the dedication and the time that they give to the teaching profession within the Jewish community. Who were they? Well, what really struck me was how so many different schools across all the denominations got behind this. I mean, often maybe uh, secular schools, religious schools, they might divide, but if anything unites us, it's education. So you, you ask what, what stood out. Well, f- for me, it was the rapturous applause that a lot of these uh, educators got from the people, colleagues from the schools in the audience. Mr. Patrick Moriarty, head teacher at JCOS, got a rapturous ovation when he won his award for outstanding inspirational leadership in a secondary school. Malka Goldblatt, the biblical and Hebrew teacher at Hasmian High School. She really uh, was well received when she won her Innovation Award. There were some really terrific highlights. It was an incredibly informative, educational and often moving evening. And I think everybody left with a real smile on their face. I think it's going to become a real fixture in the Jewish calendar. And I really look forward to doing it all again next year. Well, this was, I was just about to say, quite a big deal for the Jewish news because this is the first of its kind. We learned that last week when we spoke to Rabbi David Mayer. You may remember Diana Toman spoke to him. And I think he was implying that he was quite excited by what this could become. And now that it's actually happened, I trust you do see a future for this. Yeah, as I said, I think we need to celebrate all the different facets of our community. The Jewish community is an incredible example in so many ways, education just being one of them. So the more we do this and the more we reflect on ourselves and outwards to the rest of Britain, the the different standards that we set ourselves, then I I think that can only be a good thing. There was a really good representation of politicians there. There was a a really good array of of leaders of different organisations and communities outside the Jewish community. We were hoping that Education Secretary Nikki Morgan was going to be there. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to come, but the, uh, there was an education minister present along with uh, Tulip Sadiq and Mike Freer. So there was a, a good array of parliamentarians and I uh, really hope that we can have that sort of turnout and more now that it's a fixture in the calendar and people know what it's all about. Uh, next year will be even bigger and better. Well, just finally, looking towards next year, if people want to get a little bit ahead of the game, are they able to start registering people that they would like to see win an award now? Or is that to be announced in due course? Well, I think we sprung this on everybody with the shortlists and the nominations. And I think it was something of a surprise. So I think it's a little early for that. But I think as we get past the summer and, and into the autumn, certainly look out in the Jewish news and online, we'll certainly be sh- shouting it from the rooftops and hopefully broadening it out a little. It was a national awards, but the majority of the awards and the candidates were from inside Greater London. So hopefully next year we can perhaps look at uh, remedying that. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today are two really magnificent women, the founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and relationship expert, Emma Ziff. The subject for the edition is Holocaust Memorial. This week, thousands of people marked the annual Holocaust Memorial Day, and we also heard Phil earlier in the show talking to the chief executive of Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. The question is, how should we, as a community, ensure that future generations learn exactly what happened during that horrible time in history, By a lucky coincidence, we have one of the trustees of Holocaust Memorial Day Trust right here with us. So let's start with you, Laura. 
Holocaust Memorial Day is very close to my heart. I became a trustee because I believe very strongly in both commemoration of the people who died, the people who were murdered, but also, just as importantly for me, is the need to ensure that people in future generations understand it so it doesn't happen again. And we talk a lot about it not happening again. And in the meantime, we're also commemorating the genocides in Darfur, Rwanda, Cambodia and Bosnia. So it clearly does happen again. And what's going on in Syria may well turn out in the future to be classified as a genocide as well. So we just can't be complacent. We've got to keep teaching each other, listening to stories and asking ourselves, how do we allow this to happen? You know, I was uh, a little boy during the Second World War and during the Holocaust, and I remember after the war meeting an extremely charming woman, and she had a number on her arm. And I asked her what the number was, and she then explained very sweetly and very kindly and without any emotion that she'd been in a concentration camp and what had happened. And it's stayed with me ever since. We're not going to have those sort of people in the very near future. So what do we do then? What do you think, Emma? I very much believe in inclusive of other people as well, other countries, as, as you mentioned, Laura, about genocide in other countries, but also people who were lost in the Holocaust, for example, LGBT, disabled. So it starts to become much more inclusive for other people. So if other people are disabled, they can actually have a connection with that. If someone is lesbian or gay or transgender, they can connect with that. And I think that's important for communities to bring them in as well. I think the inclusivity is, is vital for us going forward with Holocaust Memorial Day. When, as, as Emma sort of alluded to, there were estimations up to possibly 20 million people died in the Holocaust. Six million Jews, plus all the Russians, the Poles, the Gypsies, the, the homosexuals. Yeah. That, I think, is vital. And I think it also is important for us as Jews to show that we're not completely insular with our views. We are looking outwards to the Holocaust. We're not just saying never again to the Jews. We're saying never again. I think that's possibly one of the biggest, most important messages that's to come out from Holocaust Memorial Day. And I think Holocaust Memorial Day is very important as it marks the occasion. But I think what's more important is what's happening with the survivors at the moment where they're actually going out and talking to people. The value in that is enormous and it is a concern that there aren't so many survivors left. And that, I think, never forget... I think the only way we can actually do that is for these stories to keep being passed on through the generations, not stopping when the survivors are no more. Of course, what the Prime Minister has recently announced is that there's going to be a memorial, a statue or, or something like that outside Parliament. And that's going to mean a great deal, isn't it? We were doing the work for the Commission, the, the Prime Minister's Commission on the Holocaust, uh, two years ago. Then I spoke to a lot of people. I was writing the Jewish submission to it. And I was dubious about the memorial. And a lot of people were dubious about a memorial. A lot of survivors were dubious. And then somebody said to me, look at the memorial to the animals who died in the war on Park Lane. And there's a magnificent statue. And I changed my mind at that point. And I thought, you know, 
A memorial does play a part. It's very visible. It's something that hits you in the eye and you can't, if it's a good memorial and in the right place, you can't escape from it. I know there's going to be a competition to find the right memorial and the right person to build a memorial. And I'm I'm hoping that they come up with something that is jaw-dropping so that every time people walk past it, they will remember what happened. And something poignant like at Liverpool Street with the, yeah. the Kinder Transport Memorial, it's just heart-wrenching when you see it. It's subtle, but it's so powerful. And I agree. I hope it's not some kind of modern take well, on I poignant. Although, right. although I don't like the fact that people are sort of sitting there and throwing their packed lunches all over it as well. That gets to me, and, and only because it's so low down. I just wonder what you want to say about, I guess, history teachers. You know, they're really important for this. My partner was a history teacher, and when she would go into schools and work there, because she is Jewish, she had that take on it. Her parent, A lot of her family were perished during the war, and for her, she obviously had a take on it. And she got a lot of her information from the Imperial War Museum, so they have packs and things like that. However, a lot of schools were starting to say it's actually quite expensive for them to, to take it on because they cost quite a lot. So I really feel that there needs to be more information for schools. It doesn't have to cost a lot or even anything. You know, this is something that's put into place. But it was fantastic information. She was so upset because other schools couldn't take it on. It was so valuable. So maybe we should, as a community, be a bit more philanthropic and actually fund this. You know, mm. if the schools can't afford it, surely it's, it's incumbent upon us to actually be more active and support that. Well, there's quite a lot of funding goes in because, of course, there's the Holocaust Education Trust, there's the Anne Frank Trust, there's the Imperial War Museum, the Institute of Education, which is funded by pairs, do a huge amount of teaching teachers how to teach about the Holocaust. But That's what was important. wonderful was this week when, when uh, David Cameron announced the memorial, he's also announced a continuation of funding for this stuff because it's essential, as you say. And one of the things that's a challenge is 20 years' time there'll be probably no Holocaust survivors left. And how do we retain their stories? And every time you go along, I mean, this week I've heard stories from uh, survivors of the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust, uh, Rwanda and Darfur. And when you hear the personal stories, um, you know, six million doesn't really mean anything, but one person's story, uh, Hannah Lewis talking about seeing her mother shot in front of her, you know, it sticks with you forever. There is, of course, a lot more to it, too. There could be, I use the word compulsory, but it's not really the right word, but there should be perhaps compulsory tours of Auschwitz, which I have done and which I shall remember for the rest of my life. And everybody I was with, there were about six of us there, who went through Auschwitz and the concentration camp, I think, I can't remember what it's called, I think it's Mauthausen, isn't it? Which is just about a mile away from there. Whereas Auschwitz is a museum, the other one is not a museum. It's exactly as it was in the days of the Holocaust. And you get taken into the gas chambers to see what they were like. And the only thing I could think of doing afterwards was standing in this great open field and saying Kaddish for all the people who have died there. It is quite extraordinary. And I'm sure anybody of any faith who went to these places would have the same sort of result. I really actually just want to share something because you mentioned about Anne Frank Museum and a friend of mine actually created, they've got a company called Beyond the Story and they actually created an animated book. It's sort of an app 
and it's directed at young people. And unfortunately, the museum really didn't take it. It was created for the for really for the museum, but for youngsters, and it's fantastic. So it's, it can be really difficult for youngsters to read a book or anybody because if you're really visual and you want something exciting to really get that feeling and sense, they've really created it. It's, it's an app. It's online. Have a look. It's fantastic. I wonder, though, if that's enough because... I think it's often, as Clive, you mentioned about going to Auschwitz and Laura, you mentioned about hearing people talk. It's that first hand account, that first level, whereas I'm concerned that people are recording their testimonies, making films about them. I would like personally to see their stories actually being told after they've passed by their families. So their families are completely knowledgeable what happened. So it actually means something to them. Well, I think there's a a dilemma here, which is a big dilemma, which is whose responsibility is carrying the memory of the Holocaust forward? And not just the Holocaust, all of the the genocides. And is it the responsibility of the Jewish community? And I would say it's not. Because actually, and David Cameron has been very supportive on this one, it's the whole country, it's the whole world, but it's, in our case, it's the whole country's responsibility. And one of the, the beauties of the uh, youth ambassadors that both the Holocaust Memorial Day does and HET does as well, actually, in different ways, is to get young people who are not Jewish to hear the stories, take them to Auschwitz, educate them about what happened, and then for them to go out and do it. Because once you reach, say, the third generation, the, the grandchildren of the Holocaust survivor, how much is it their responsibility any more than it's my responsibility or your responsibility? It's all of our responsibility. And we've got to embed that responsibility in the whole community if we really want these memories to remain. Yeah, and I wonder if it's too much to expect the family, actually, because well, I know that there, are, there is goes through the genes, the trauma of the Holocaust. It's yeah. been proven goes through. That's why I suggested that, so, that there yeah. should be made compulsory visits to Auschwitz and that people should be made to go there. I remember when I, when I went to Poland and to Latvia, people tried to put me off going to see what was left of the... There weren't concentration camps in Latvia, but there is a graveyard there where all the Jewish people who had died shortly after coming out of the concentration camps were buried. And they tried to persuade us not to go there, not to look at it. Oh, you don't want to go there. And I think that's the sort of thing that should be shown by Latvians to everybody. But how can you make someone who's not interested interested? How how can you say it's compulsory? Does that not have a counter effect that you're actually then forcing it on people and it's not going to don't want to know? Well, then how else do you do it? Well, there, there's a practical consideration here as well, which is it's not practical and it's not affordable for everybody to go. I mean, the government pays for two sixth formers from every school in the country to go. That's the project, Lessons from Auschwitz. But that's it's not practical for everybody to go. It's just not going to happen. So we have to work out how to uh, enable the people who have taken it on board and the people who do care about it and have been educated about it. How do you get them to pass that on? And I tell you that another thing that I think is interesting is how to ensure that non-Jewish kids understand about the Jewish Holocaust and how to ensure that Jewish kids understand about the other Mm, genocides. Because until we understand other people's genocides, it can't only be about us. You were saying this earlier. So we have to go to Bosnia. We have to go to Rwanda. We have to... I mean, it's not so easy to go to these places, but we have to get a sense that this is going on around the world and that people kill each other. 
our time is up and we will have to leave it, but it's a lot to think about. So thank you all very much indeed. And my thanks to our guests, founder, Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and relationships expert, Emma Ziff. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edwin Masorti Synagogue. This week, we will read Parashat Itro and the familiar yet still amazing story of the people of Israel receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai and sealing their covenant with God. This very event is called, in theological terms, revelation and implies the idea of God communicating with human beings, revealing his presence and his project for us. The understanding of revelation is one of the main differences between the modern streams in Judaism. Orthodox Judaism, reflecting one interpretation of the Talmudic sages, believes that not only God revealed his presence, but also gave to Moses a text, the Torah, identical to the one we have today and eternally binding for the people of Israel. The emphasis is in God as legislator. Reformed Judaism, on the contrary, understands revelation differently, and they don't believe that the text of the Torah was revealed in Sinai. Therefore, Jewish law is a human construct, and every Jew has the right to make his own informed decisions about it with complete autonomy. The emphasis is in the individual as practicer. Masorti Judaism has yet a different view. We agree with reform on a non-fundamentalist view of the Torah, accepting the main academic version of the text as a human construction that took hundreds of years to get to the form we know. On the other hand, we do see a divine inspiration for such a text, one that started with God revealing himself to Israel in Sinai and that was passed generation after generation. We differ from the reform in the fact that we do see Allaha a divine expression of the Jewish commitment to that revelation in Sinai, an expression that has always evolved and changed with time and place. The emphasis for us is in the community, in the narrow and wider sense of the word, as the legitimate expression of the collective will of the people of Israel and their response to the reality of God. Thank you to Rabbi Michal Evan David from Edgware Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week. Just before we go, in the time The Jewish Views has been on air, we've had a couple of requests here and there about various appeals and events. But this one we simply had to read out. 24-year-old Lara Casalotti is from Belsize Park and she was diagnosed at the end of last year with a rare form of leukaemia and she urgently needs to find a stem cell donor within the next few weeks to save her life. The problem is that she is from mixed heritage, which makes it hard to find a match. Her parents are Chinese Thai and Italian and her best chance is finding donors from Asian or mixed-race backgrounds. Now, there are various events happening in London to try and help find a match, including this Sunday, the 31st of January, at the Jewish Museum in Camden. It's between 10am and 3pm. So if you are able to go, then please do. If not, you can also help from your very own home. You can order a kit that will test you from deleteblood cancer.com. 
deletebloodcancer.org.uk. That's deletebloodcancer, all one word, .org.uk. And you can also find out more about Lara by going to match Four. that's the number four, lara.com, match4lara.com. With any luck, someone out there will be able to help Lara in time, and naturally everyone at the Jewish Views wishes her all the best. And that's all the Jewish Views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Olivia Marks-Waldman, Jay Rayner, Peter Behan, Laura Marks and Emma Ziff, who were on the schmooze, and of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.